Why is there suffering in the world? And more specifically, Job is addressing a question that was prominent in, the, in Eastern thought at that time and is still somewhat prominent even today in some circles. And that is, does a person experience suffering as a result of their own personal sin? That's what's being asked in the book of Job. And, and to be fair, some of the suffering we experience is a result of sin in that we do things that cause us to suffer. All right? That's not the kind of suffering that, that, that is being discussed in the book of Job. In the book of Job, the suffering that he experiences comes from outside. It's not something that he did. It's not something that he said. It's not that he was oppressive to, to his servants. It was, it's not that he was mean to his wife. I mean, he, got, he, he, he incurred suffering from outside of himself. And the question that they were asking in the book is, is it Job's fault? And in fact, as we'll see, the guys, his best friends who came to comfort him, their comfort ended up being, hey, Job, it's your fault. If you'll just repent of whatever secret sin that you have and let that go, then you'll be healed and everything will be fine. And we find that the book of Job pushes back on that uh, idea. So let's dive in. Uh, hold on to your hats, as the book of Job says. Brace yourself. Um, this is a tough book, and it's some tough going, but we're hard workers, and we're going to get through it, and we're going we're gonna to pull something out of this book. Amen? All right. Job 1.1. 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So the premise of Job at the very, very get-go, is that Job was not a bad person. He was not evil. He was upright. He was good. He was following God. He was pursuing God. There wasn't some secret unrighteousness that he was hiding from the rest of the world. He was a good man. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all of the people in the east. So, so far, the story fits together. He's a good man, and he's being blessed. He's a good man, and things are going well for him, right? Now, here's where things get dicey. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. So we go from Job here to sort of this celestial sphere where the sons of God come to present themselves to God and Scripture says Satan also came among them. And throughout the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, uh, sometimes Satan would be a name, and sometimes it would be a noun, ha-satan, which means the accuser, the opposer, the adversary, one who obstructs, okay? And uh, sort of throughout the Scripture, this, this character of Satan becomes the embodiment of evil. Um, and so it says that Satan also came among them to the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. I've just been hanging out, wandering around, seeing what kind of trouble I can stir up. (laughs) Amen. Um, Verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away evil? So God, the Lord challenges Satan and says, look, you're looking around to disrupt people, to mess things up, to find people that are, that, are, that are not doing right. 
And I want you to take a look at this one guy that I've got. His name's Job, and he is solid. He is solid. You will not find anything wrong with Job. And Satan says, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan says, this guy knows who butters his bread. That's why he's so good because you haven't ever challenged him. You haven't done anything to him. He's just good because he's happy because he's got money and he's got wealth and he's He's, you know, why wouldn't he love you? So, the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has in, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the Lord says, so here's the, here's the premise of the story. Job, upright guy. Wealth, family, everything you could ask for. Then we cut to... The celestial sphere, Satan says to God, you know, I'm hanging around, I'm wandering around. Job sa- God says, look at Job, he's upright. Satan says, it's because he's so blessed. And that's when God says, all right, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lift my hand from him, and I'm going to let you touch those things that he has, but don't touch his body. Just touch those things that he has, and I will show you that he will still love me. In the next several verses we see a series of events. We see Job's life crumble before him. Uh, He's at his home, and and one of his servants comes running up to him, and he says, your oxen were plowing in the field. The donkeys were there beside them, and the the Sabaeans, a, 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 a tribe, nearby tribe, came and slaughtered all of your servants and stole all of your oxen and your donkeys. And while that person was yet speaking, Another servant came running up and said, Job, the fire of God fell down from heaven, consumed all of your sheep and all of your servants that were tending your sheep. They're all gone, and I alone escaped to tell you. And while that servant was yet speaking, another servant came running up and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down your servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. And while that servant was yet speaking another servant came running up and said your sons and daughters were in your oldest brother's house and they were having a party and drinking wine and great wind a great wind came along and destroyed the house and fell upon them and they've all died and i alone have escaped to tell you so within moments everything that job had everything that he loved Everything that he possessed was gone. Completely and totally, utterly wiped out. If you're having a a hard day, (laughs) read the book of Job. All you have to read is the first chapter and you go, oh, you know what? My life's not that bad, actually, after all. Um, So the scripture says that Job responds to this by rising up, tearing his robe, shaving his head. He falls on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is amazingly profound about Job's initial response to this suffering is his faith. 
Initially, he comes straight out and says, God, you've given me everything that I have. You take it away and blessed be your name anyway. I still love you, God. But as we know, even sometimes that initial rush of faith, that initial rush of courage, that initial rush of fortitude sometimes diminishes in the weeks and the months that linger on and on after we have incurred some sort of suffering, after we've endured a loss. You know, when the funeral is over and the friends are gone and the family is gone and you're in the house and the buzz of laughter, the buzz of conversation is not there, the clothes of the loved one are hanging lifeless in the closet and day after day or week after week or month after month, you think, Wow, I, 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 I had this rush of faith immediately after the loss, but now I'm beginning to wonder. I'm beginning to doubt. Is God really there? Is God really with me? Uh, in chapter 2 of the book of Job, Job's three friends, and I use that term loosely, <laughs> uh, three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to comfort him. And the scripture says the first thing they did was probably the best thing they did you know, throughout the whole time they were there. They just sat down with him and they were silent. Scripture says that for seven days, they all sat there in total and complete silence. No one said anything. His grief was so great that he couldn't say anything. But during that time of silence, we learned that he spiraled into despair. He spiraled into deep, deep sorrow. Because the scripture says that when he opened his mouth, In Job chapter 3, he says, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. Job says, I wish that I had just died. My sorrow is so great. My grief is so overwhelming. I just wish that I had never been born. Because if I hadn't been born, then I wouldn't have had to endure this suffering. I would have never known. I would have been at rest. I would have been at peace. Why did I have to live at all? And after he gives this speech, his, his first friend, Eliphaz, decides to comfort him. And as I mentioned earlier, he comforts him with a theological or religious platitude that he thinks will be of some comfort and he thinks may be truthful. And so he gives it to him and we find that it's no comfort at all. Eliphaz says, Job, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, Eliphaz says, as I, as I look around, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. Eliphaz says, this is your fault, Job. You did something to cause this to happen to you. The righteous just don't suffer like this. Only the evil suffer like this. You must have done something. This this concept somehow still manages to linger around times of suffering for people. Um, And I've heard people and I've spoken to people who, after experiencing or enduring some great problem in their life they think is it my fault did i do something that that happened you know i I don't know if you remember this this movie goodwill hunting uh but there was this it's an old movie (laughs) but 
there's this great scene where the character that's played by Matt Damon, who endured all sorts of abuse as a child, he comes to the Robin Williams character, who's a, who's a counselor, and uh, they're both talking about this, this abuse that, that Matt Damon's character had suffered as a, as a young man, and now all this rage is coming out of him, and he can't understand why, and he's fighting, and, uh, and the Robin Williams character comes to him and says, hey, Will, I just want you to know, it's not your fault. And Will says, well, yeah, no, I, I know, I know. And Robin Williams says, no, seriously, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon says, all right, no, I know. And Robin Williams says, it's not your fault, Will, it's not your fault. And he repeats it over and over and over because he knows that somewhere buried in the psyche of this kid is this belief that the suffering that he endured was somehow his own fault. That he's guilty for the pain that was inflicted upon him. So just as a side note, if any of you are struggling with that notion today, be relieved from that notion. It's not your fault. If you've been hurt or abused or something has happened to you from your past, that's just a, that's just a premise straight out of the gospel. It's not your fault. Um, and Job knows this. Down in Job's heart, he knows it's not my fault. In fact, he turns to his comforters and says just that. He says to them, teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. But what do your arguments prove? Would I lie to your face? Relent, do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Job's saying, I have not done anything to deserve this. I don't know why this is happening, but I haven't done anything to deserve this. And throughout the, the passage, there's a cycle of speeches. Eliphaz and, and, the, and Bildad, and, and they, they, so far they all three give him speeches, and they increasingly call it his fault, and he increasingly defends himself, and this goes through the whole cycle of the book. And finally, Job turns to God. Because his friends are bringing him no comfort. They're bringing him no knowledge, no information that is useful to him. And he turns to God and he says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. Job says, God You are not giving me any comfort. You're not giving me any peace. You're not giving me any answer. This suffering that you are are wreaking upon me is not fair. I don't understand it. Why is it happening? Some of us may be asking that same question today. Why is the suffering that I'm feeling, why is it happening to me? Or you may be asking it for someone else. Someone that you know that has been hurt or harmed. You may be saying, why is that happening to them? I know that they don't deserve this. We tend now in the Western world not to blame the sufferer for their suffering. We tend not to say, well, you know, that person developed a disease. Therefore, they must have sinned in order to get that disease. We don't do that. The Western response to suffering is to doubt the reality of God. In fact, the problem of suffering, that philosophical problem of suffering, is one of the strongest arguments that that skeptics will use if you 
you know, against people of faith. And the argument goes like this. If God is all-powerful, he could stop suffering, right? And if God was all-loving, he would want to stop suffering. And yet there's suffering. Therefore, there must be no God. Or he must not be all-powerful. Or he must not be all-loving. And as Christians, that is one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest sort of philosophical questions that we face. Because we do believe in an all-powerful God. We do believe in an all-loving God. And we do believe that he doesn't love suffering. And we do believe that he really exists. And so we have to struggle with this question. And the scripture provides us with, I think, three different responses that I just want to go over with you just briefly this morning. Three responses to this major question of suffering. Are you tracking with me so far? Amen. I know this isn't as much of a, come on, you can do it kind of sermon. Um, but it is in, in its own way, deep down. Um, it just takes a while to get there. <laughs> um, the Bible offers us an intellectual response to the problem of suffering. It offers us a sovereign response to the question of suffering. And it offers us a redemptive response to the question of suffering. All right? And I'm going to walk through these with you. Uh, the first response, the intellectual answer to the problem of suffering is the world and everything in it is broken by sin and that brokenness spills out on the just and the unjust. This is a theologically true statement. Suffering in the world is introduced to the world by sin. Not necessarily the sin of the person who is suffering, but by sin in general. And that sin, that brokenness permeates the world and it spills out on all of us, whether we're just or unjust. That's a theological Verity in the scripture. My, uh, you, you've heard me talk about my father, but my father, when he, in 2003, he began to suffer from, he didn't know what. He began to suffer from some major illness. And he went from being a strong, athletic guy to just sort of slowly, his body just sort of slowly deteriorated. And he wasn't able to do the things that he loved. He loved basketball. He, loved, he, he was actually a really great basketball player. He played for Wellston here back in a long time ago. Uh, and he had this great outside, you know, jump shot, fadeaway jumper. And, and I remember it was, uh, I think the first time I ever beat him in a game of basketball was after he had had a quadruple bypass. He was in his late 60s, and I think I beat him by one point. So just because he was just ridiculously good on the basketball court. But suddenly his body just started to, kind of stop, just kind of slow down, kind of stiffen up. And no one could figure out why. He went to this heart specialist, and the heart specialist said, well, I think it's the kidneys. And the kidney specialist says, maybe it's the liver. Maybe the liver guy says, well, I think it's the heart. And so you're going around and around, and nobody knew what was wrong with him. And finally, he went to the Mayo Clinic. This is back in 2003. Went to the Mayo Clinic. They ran a battery of tests on him. And they, they came to him and said, wow, this is interesting. They said, uh, there is a disease that one in a, in a million people get. Literally one in a million people. It's called primary amyloidosis. And it's this disease where uh, uh, the, the blood creates an excessive amount of protein. That protein gets into the, the organs and strengthen, strengthens them so much that they can't operate. They, they, just get, they just stop. And I had a buddy who's a pathologist, and I called him, and I said, hey, man, what's going on with primary amyloidosis? What is the deal? And, 
And my buddy Kenny explained what it looked like under a microscope, gave me all the details, gave me the chemistry and the biology behind it. Said, look, we don't know exactly where it comes from. It's not genetic. It's not bacterial. It's not viral. It just happens to one in a million people. We don't know why. And it's, you know, it's fatal. He's like, just, it's just, you know, there's no way around it, right? So we went from having no idea what was wrong with my dad to having a very detailed explanation, an intellectual answer to the problem. What's wrong with him? Okay, now we have the answer. And the answer, having the answer was good, having the answer was useful, but having the answer didn't provide any comfort. It didn't provide any healing. It didn't provide any peace to him or to anyone else. I'm not saying it's not good to have the answer. This is the answer to the problem of suffering, but this is not going to comfort a mother who has lost her son or her daughter. This is not going to comfort a family who has lost their home. You can go ahead and turn that off, Will. Uh, knowing the answer doesn't, doesn't solve the issue. It doesn't heal you. It doesn't bring you peace. And that's what Job's comforters were doing. They brought, they brought him answers. We're okay. I think it's off. We're good. Okay. Go ahead. Um, they brought him theological responses to his problem, but it didn't bring him comfort. It didn't bring him peace. And so God also presents to us, in fact, let me just expand on that just for a minute. In in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, um, the scripture says, in, after the, after the you know, we, we talked about the story of Adam and Eve and sin entering the world, and in Genesis 3, it says, In pain you shall eat from the ground all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. The scripture saying sin breaks the world. And so in the world we see brokenness. And it's just the way things are because there's sin in the world. And until the world is redeemed and fully restored, there will be brokenness in the world. That's the intellectual answer to the problem of suffering. The Bible also provides... The sovereign answer. And this is also true, but not necessarily fully comforting, okay? This is the answer that God gave Job. The sovereign answer to suffering is that God's purposes are not always readily discernible to us, yet we are called to trust him nonetheless. That's true. That is true. That's a theological truth, right? But it doesn't necessarily bring us hope. It doesn't necessarily bring us peace. It brings us some peace in that we know that we believe and we trust that there's a God that's got everything in control. In fact, the, the, one, of the most, one of the most powerful passages in the book of Job is after Job turns to God and says, why, why, why? I demand to know why. And, and he's accusing God and saying, I want to know why this is happening to me. And then there's this massive, long speech that God gives to Job, and I won't read the whole thing, but he just, he turns to Job and he says, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominions over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Who provides food for the raven? When it's young, cry out to God and wonder for lack of food. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. 
Job push, or God pushes back on Job's demands and says, Job, listen, you can't fully comprehend what's going on. You're, and we talked about this in our life group. We as finite creatures are seeing the world, we're seeing the world through a glass dimly. We're seeing the world from a finite perspective. God is reflecting on us through the prism of eternity, through the scope of eternity, through the, through the understanding of providence, through the divine plan and sovereignty of God. That's how he's seeing us. We can't possibly think that we're going to be able to see our own life in the same way that God sees us. And that's how God responds to Job by saying, Job, I'm sovereign. You've got to trust me. You can't know everything. That is an unsatisfying answer to the modern mind because we, we tend to think that we should know everything. We want to know everything. We, are, we don't see ourselves as, as less than anything. And God is saying, look, you're, you're, you're missing how great and majestic and powerful and mighty I am. And I can't explain to you all the mysteries of the universe. You will know it better by and by. So that is the... That is the, um, the answer that God gives Job. But also, that doesn't exactly comfort or bring peace, right? And so, ultimately, God gives what I want to call the redemptive answer to suffering. And the redemptive answer to suffering is that God sent his only son to suffer as one of us. He doesn't give us the information. He gives us his life. He comes and suffers with us so that we can relate to him. My son, Jameson, uh, a few weeks ago was running on our sidewalk in front of our house. And he likes to wear these big clunky rain boots. And uh, we live in University City, and so the sidewalks are not always perfectly you know, even, right? Chesterfield, the sidewalks are perfectly even. You know? But you cities, there's, you know, there's uh, like a little tree growing out of it. No. Uh, but so, so Jameson has got his rain boots on and he's running down the sidewalk in University City and trucking along and you know what happens, right? His foot catches, boom, he's down on his knees Huge scrape on his, on his knee. I mean, just a real, one of those real mean strawberries just tore it up. And you could see, you could hear, I was on the porch, you could hear the shock in his voice. You know, I mean, he was truly startled. You could see that the tears were absolutely real. This was not one of those faux falls that they also like to do. This was the real deal. And I was on the porch, and I come running down, and I see him there, and his eyes, I mean, just tears are just pouring out. His, his voice, you can hear it all through the neighborhood, just crying out. And at that moment, I could have said, all right, look, son, here's what's going on. First of all, your rain boots are not exactly athletic shoes, all right? All right, and second of all, you know, the sidewalks are not even here, son. You need to observe that. And third of all, you know, you shouldn't be running that fast anyway. I mean, I could have given him... Good answers, good explanations, good analysis for what happened, right? That wouldn't have done anything. So in one of my finer parenting moments, and I, re- and I, and I hold on to those because they don't happen that often, I sat down beside him, I rolled up my pant leg, and I go, 
you know, Jameson, you see this scar? Daddy, Daddy got a scar just like, just like that. Because Daddy one time was on his bicycle and he fell off and, and it put a big thing on Daddy's. And then over here, I um, and pulled up my other pant leg. You know, I got a piece of glass that cut. And pretty soon I go, and on my shin, if you see there's a boo-boo there from, and, and now, we're, now we're relating, right? Now I'm saying, you know, son, I, I've, I know what you feel like. I, this is how, ha- I've, had, I've had this happen too, you know? And he's saying, oh, okay. And somehow me being able to empathize with what he's going through provided him the courage, provided him the peace, provided him the comfort that he needed. That's what, that's what the gospel is. God is saying, look, I could give you the answer written in the sky to, to the mysteries of the universe and why there's brokenness and why there's suffering in the world. I could bang you over the head with it, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son to suffer, to be spit upon, to be scourged, to be hung from a tree so that you know that I know what you're going through so that you know that I can feel your pain so that you know that I made myself like you so that I could bring you close to me. That is the redemptive response, the Christian redemptive response to the question of suffering. There aren't, as to, to my knowledge, other theologies that have a suffering deity the, where, where the, where the, uh, the, 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 the knowledge of suffering is so great, so intense that God himself comes and suffers with us. Uh, in Isaiah 53, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes this, and I love this quote. He says, if we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus, we still don't know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. He was mocked, he was spit upon, beaten and scourged and hung on a tree in shame for us to relate to us. So God's response to the question of suffering is to suffer like us. God's response to the question of suffering is to provide the means through his suffering that one day we will never suffer again. Amen? In the end, God restored all of Job's fortunes. Scripture says that he gave him twice what he had. Double all of his wealth. Seven more sons. Three more daughters. His family came around him. Feasted with him. Consoled him. Loved on him. And brought him back to health. And in the, in the end, Job's suffering was soothed. And he could lift up his eyes and lift up his, his, his voice. And say, I know, in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God, Job says. I will see Him with my own eyes, how my heart yearns within me. So I want to say to you today, if you 
if you are suffering or you know someone who's suffering, don't let that suffering turn to despair. Don't let that pain turn to cynicism and don't let your sorrow turn to bitterness. Rather, let your suffering drive you into the arms of a Savior who knows suffering more intimately than any of us could ever imagine. And let hope and peace and gratitude swell up in your heart so you can sing that great old hymn, Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He suffered for you. He died for you. He gave his life as an answer, as the answer to suffering. Amen. Amen. I want to thank the writers of Job for giving me the hardest week that I've had in the last year and a half since this church started. But praise God, I do think that it brings us ultimately peace. Not, a, not the platitudes, not the you know, Pollyanna happy-go-lucky peace, but a deep residing peace in knowing that God is with us and that he understands our suffering. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this book. Thank you, God, for challenging us. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for knowing intimately our suffering, what it means to suffer. Father, we ask you today to just encourage us, be with us, give us strength. Help us, Lord, to really, really grasp how much you love us, how deeply your love is for us, that you're not detached, that you're not indifferent to suffering, but that you love us and that you sent your son to suffer and die on our behalf. Father, we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, as we get